Caitlin, I want to revisit something you said at brunch last weekend. Oh, no, I'm scared. Is this accountability? (laughs) Uh, Depends. Why do you dislike going to Sephora? Who hurt you? The salespeople have hurt me. A few months ago, I went and I needed new liquid eyeliner and was asking Mm -hmm. the clerk, between these two, which do you recommend? I think I use this one. I guess it's for beginners. And he was like, yeah, you definitely use that one. (laughs) (laughs) This wasn't Sephora, but I remember getting my nails done once. And as she was painting on the new color, I was like, oh, it's so pretty. I really like it. And she was like, yes, it's much better than the one you had on before. Oh, gosh. Ouch. That's like the definition of a a backhanded compliment. You know, backhanded, it was on the back of your hand. Ah, good one. (laughs) From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women getting all dolled up in New York. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. So funny story, when I was in college, I, um, a friend of mine was like kind of had a band um, and they wanted to do a music video. So they asked me if I would be in the music video, which oh. was very fun. Um, I mean, it was very low key, but they could flew I, me to Chicago. Could I find this music video on the internet? I don't think so. I don't know that they ever really did anything with it. I have a VHS version <laughs> Oh, nice. <laughs> Old school. <laughs> but um, they flew me to Chicago and like I got to have like a haircut done, um, a fancy haircut in a fancy salon. And um, and then I got to have a makeover. But it was really this is, still to this day makes me laugh. Before we went to the makeover, I was like talking with my friend. And you know how I don't know. Girls do this sometimes where you're like saying what you don't like about your physical appearance. I don't know if you've yeah, ever. I've, I've dabbled in that. <laughs> negative self-talk I was like I don't like my profile and I said I feel like it makes me look like a monkey or something like I don't know why I said this I don't know why I thought this as a as a, as a college student but I was like I don't like my profile and then my friend and I go to this uh makeup artist and when we get in this person looks at us and he goes oh are you two sisters you have the same profile <laughs> And your friend was like, awesome. I am your monkey friend. I felt so, it was so bizarre and funny. It would be nice to get some beauty products to sponsor the podcast. I, I'm not above that. Mm. If anybody listening knows some connections to like Mac. Mm. We have <laughs> talked about Mac lipstick on we here have. before. Yes. I might have scoffed at that idea in the past. Why would a beauty product be interested in a podcast about faith and theology? But today's guest, she pretty successfully made the connection between the two. Candace Marie Benbow is a theologian who situates her work at the intersections of beauty, faith, feminism, and culture. It is very easy to say what is wrong with the thing. What takes time is to construct, because it's not fair to strip and take something away from someone and not put something in its place. Candace is the author of Red Lip Theology for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. Our conversation with Candace is coming up after the break. 
Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. From the Southern Baptist to the Buddhists, find all your religion news at religionnews.com. And if you like what we're doing at Say by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way towards spreading the word about our show. A longtime listener, Grace, wrote in her review that, quote, the guests are interesting, the conversation and pacing does not drag, and Caitlin and Roxy are definitely willing to stir the pot a bit. Stirring pots once a week since 2021. You can also email us at sbtcpodcasts at religionnews.com. We want to hear from you, and we reply. The table of contents for Candace's book is one of the more unique ones I've seen in a long time. And I thought it might be fun to read a little bit from the table of contents so our listeners get a feel for it. Yeah. The way that she framed her whole book is just really cool. It's around around beauty and beauty products. So one chapter, for example, one of the first chapters is called We Are Good Creation Skincare. And her description is, skin tells all my business. When I'm embarrassed, angry, or stressed, I'm not taking care of myself and need water. My skin is the me I can't escape. And taking care of my skin ensures I become a person worthy of my time and attention. I liked what she said in the chapter on foundation, which is, Mm -hmm. do you want to explain to our listeners, like, I'm thinking about my dad, what foundation is? Oh, like the, it's, yeah, it's the, it's the foundation of your makeup. Um, as in, I don't know how do you describe foundation? It's a liquid usually that is like the color of your skin tone and it's supposed to like even out. Yes. Uh, all the imperfections. Candace writes, foundation grounds our look and everything about it. A miscalculation in this step will throw off everything. The wrong foundation can leave us discolored and unable to effectively present our creativity to the world. But the right one, everything can come together and we are unstoppable. Yeah. That is really true. If you were going to construct a book around a central metaphor, what would you use? I know I told you and a few other people that someday I think I want to write a book about birds and Mm. the spiritual dimensions of bird watching. Um, I have my parents to thank for introducing me to this hobby. I am currently at around 800 species. So you really do keep track. Yes. I have somewhere in my apartment, I have a binder (laughs) that lists like... I mean, there are about 10,000 species in the world. Right. And when I travel overseas, I always try to tack on like a a bird watching trip so I can add to the Mm -hmm. list. But one of the things I like about bird watching, though, is that you can pretty much do it wherever you are. Mm -hmm. I think about the boring birds or the common birds and learning to Mm -hmm. appreciate them as much as the really rare, glamorous birds. (laughs) I like it. Definitely. Definitely could work with that. Like cardinals. As a metaphor. Yes. Cardinals are very common birds in the eastern part of North America. And several years ago, I had a friend who was living in California at the time visit. And he was so amazed by cardinals. And I was like, I was like, really? They're so they're so common. But learning to see the beauty of even the common birds and not take them for granted. I feel like there's a lot there. And obviously the spiritual, there are so many birds within scripture. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if even the sparrows are worthy of God's attention, how much more are we worthy of God's attention? So there's a lot there. Okay. Clear something up for me. The Bible talks a lot about doves. Are doves really just pigeons? (laughs) No, I think that they are probably in a similar 
they are closer evolutionarily to each mm-hmm. other than other birds, but they are very distinct. Like, are they? Okay. Cause I've, I've seen people say before, like a pigeon is like a dove is really just a pigeon. What? And they do have, they do make similar noises. They do but... make similar noises. If you've ever heard, like usually in the morning or at sunset, like a, ooh, ooh, yeah. Ooh. And people, sometimes people think it's an owl. That's almost mm-hmm. certainly a morning dove, oh. not a pigeon. Okay. Well, I have the pleasure of listening to pigeons all day long. <laughs> yes. Don't they live like between your building and yes. another building and yes. roost outside and babies? Oh, my gosh. Twice a, twice a year they have babies there. <laughs> oh, man. And then I get to watch the baby pigeons become adult pigeons. Are they cute? No. They're, they're ugly? Not. I mean, I think maybe they they have like a cute stage, but it's short. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I really like pigeons. I realize that they are known as the rats of the air in New York. Trash birds. Trash birds, yes. But sometimes when the light catches their feathers, Mm -hmm. they can actually be really pretty. It's true. They have like some iridescence to them. Yes. um, I feel like this should probably go in your book. Yes. This feels like a metaphor. It does. Just, it does. You know, it's it's right. in search of <laughs> meaning. So what would you choose as a central theme if you were writing a book or me- central metaphor to explore? So I think I would write it around items in my apartment. Mm. A lot of things that I have in my apartment mean a lot to me. They were things I inherited from my grandparents or things I found at like vintage shops. A lot of them have stories. There's this painting that I have that was my grandma's and it's this green lady. And growing up when I would visit, I thought it was really creepy. Mm -hmm. And then like the older I got, the more I loved it. And then when when my grandparents passed, I was like, I want that painting. Mm -hmm. And everyone thought I was crazy. Like, why would you want the creepy green lady painting? I think it's so cool. I've always I've always thought it was so striking. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I think even just maybe like maybe there's a metaphor there of like growing up with something seems seeming strange or creepy or out of the ordinary and the ways that like as you grow, you learn to love something or I don't know. Or like I have this leather chair that is not a vintage piece. Um, It's actually like one of the few pieces I bought new and invested in. But I remember when I bought it, I was Mm -hmm. like, I want this to be like something I've, I own for a lifetime. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what this kind of chair is. Mm -hmm. When I found um, my bed, uh, Mm -hmm. which is like this kind of brass bed. um, And there's a song about that. Um, And like, it was, it was, I was in like a really tough transition spot in my life. And I found this bed and bought it and like it was like the first piece of furniture I had as I was like moving into Mm. a new place and like so there's like a Mm -hmm. lot of stories around that I think and just like the way that I kind of built a life after sort of losing the one that I had Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I will say your apartment is very carefully curated and I always get the sense like everything here has there is a reason why this is here there's no higher compliment you could give me (laughs) We're so excited today to be joined by Candace Marie Benbow. 
And first off, Candace, we talk a lot on this show about living in New York City, but I think there's only one person on this podcast who's had their picture on a billboard in Times Square. So <laughs> tell us about that. Tell us what that was like to see yourself on a giant wow. billboard. <laughs> Yes, I got like a text from my agent. She sends me the picture and I scream. Like I immediately went home FaceTime video and I'm like screaming, crying and immediately booked a ticket because I was like, I have to see this in person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to go there and see it just probably was one of the like Mm. most life-affirming experiences I've ever had. They had a couple of books that they selected as editor's picks to highlight during Black History Month. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So, Candace, the title of your book, which this is one of the best subtitles I've come across in a long time, (laughs) Red Lip Theology for Church Girls Who've Considered Tithing to the Beauty Supply Store When Sunday Morning Isn't Enough. Yes. What is... (laughs) Red Lip Theology, and why frame this book around beauty products of all things? So Red Lip Theology is the lens through which I see the world and see myself as a Black millennial woman of faith. It gives room and space and opportunity for the ways that I was both formed by church and in church and also have grown into my own relationship and understanding with God. And Red Lip Theology is a way of knowing and understanding who we are and who we are to be in this world, not just for ourselves, but for for everyone around us. And framing it around beauty products was really because my best friend came to see me after I had gotten my heart broken and a relationship ended and I looked a mess. And so she made me promise to put more care and emphasis in how I looked. She and one of my line sisters, my sorority sisters, took me to Sephora and bought me all of these products. And so at the time that I was in seminary at Duke, I was also holding and keeping this promise to my best friend. So for me, beauty industry participation and theological education go hand in hand. (laughs) So I really was like, what better way to have a conversation with women about faith, women like me, than through having conversations about beauty? I do think one of the things that I love about your book is it is sort of just this stubborn digging in on being a woman and Mm -hmm. celebrating that and claiming it, even reclaiming it from ways that the church tried to define it for you. You know, you write from your own experience. And so aside from my Christian school experience, which was hell, and seminary, I didn't have much experience with white Christian women in church space. And so writing from my own experience and then hearing and reading their reactions to relative theology and them saying like, 
some of these experiences are similar to me too, as what it means to mm-hmm. to reclaim faith and feminism for myself. And so I would say that that's been a beautiful gift of this relic theology journey is to see where culturally I get to intersect with with women who I would have never thought. Mm. But I like the way that you, you know, frame it because there is this stubbornness of like, you don't get to define what faith should look like for me especially when you're not being honest about what all is going into how you are defining faith for me, right? Mm -hmm. That there are these power dynamics, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. there is at the heart of things is the subjugation of women, Mm -hmm. right? And this kind of benevolent complementarianism and very subtle and covert in many ways that if you don't catch it and call it out, you know, you you become victim to it. Mm-hmm. You write about womanist theology, and we've talked a lot about dismantling kind of a white male patriarchal lens of theology, how important that is. So what is womanist theology for listeners who have maybe heard that phrase, but don't exactly know what it is. And why do you say that in fact, we all should be womanist in our theology? Yeah. So womanist theology is a theological framework and articulation that examines black women's relationship with God Mm -hmm. and the world Mm -hmm. through that faith lens and that faith relationship. Right. And so it looks at the ways that Black women experience a very particular kind of gendered oppression and what the theological implications of that are. Writing We Should All Be Womanist was really about what it means for for us to ground our theology in the space that Black women have been saving us and saving each other, Mm -hmm. and that in a world that has been so hard for Black women to navigate, the only safe place and refuge that many of us have found has been each other. Mm -hmm. But much more broadly than that, like we have to, I think all of us as women have to have to develop an intersectional feminist theology that pushes us to see other women's experiences in the community of ours. And what does it look like for us to to work and collaborate so that all of us get free? And I think that that, that intersectional theological lens is really where, you know, as we keep talking about deconstruction which is not Mm -hmm. one of my favorite words (laughs) (laughs) but everybody's deconstructing Mm -hmm. um and part of that is because it's easy Mm. it is very easy to say what is wrong with the thing what takes time is to construct because it's not fair to strip and take something away from someone and not put something in its Mm. place what i think that we have to do is as we continue to talk about oh these are unhealthy theological practices. Like we've got to embrace an intersectional uh, commitment uh, to each other. I want to dig in just a little bit there. You know, I think it would be 
tempting to look at your book and say there is an amount of deconstruction here. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting to me to hear you say like, that's not where you want to camp out. And that's not where you would like place the work that you're trying to do. Yeah. One of the reasons why I like push back when people say, push back is my word, <laughs> gently refrain. <laughs> Relative theology isn't a deconstructionist project. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason that it's not a deconstructionist project, I argue, is that deconstruction in and of itself still centers whiteness mm-hmm. because you are having to look at structures of whiteness to say how they are problematic in order to move away from them. Mm -hmm. Relative theology is a womanist project Hmm. because at every turn and every space, it centers the lived experiences of black women. Is there an inherent unearthing of turning away from rejection of harmful theologies and an embracing of new thoughts, ideas? Absolutely. but I think, and this is this is where I challenge a lot of people, I think that we have gotten to a point where there's a danger, I feel, in a lot of what's, what's happening around deconstruction. Mm. It's because I hear people and I read their work and I, and I read their conversations and I listen to their talks and I'm like, this is good what have you given people Hmm. in this Mm -hmm. place? Because if you tell a person that the foundation of their house is faulty and you can see the cracks and that one day this house is going to fall and they can either be in the house when it falls and die or be outside of it and still lose everything. And they believe you because they trust you Mm -hmm. and they pack up and leave there's some level of responsibility that you have to help them find housing. Mm. And so part of what relic theology has done and does is that it's not just saying what's wrong, but it offers new ways to think about God, new ways to have conversations about ourselves and the divine, because I, in good conscience and faith, can't just say to you, this is wrong and point out all of the ways that these theologies are harmful. And then here you say, okay, what do I do next? And I don't have anything for you. I was in grad school and I was thinking through what my thesis project was going to be. And my mom said, you're not going to write a thesis that is going to unearth a new problem. People know what the problems are, um, what is important and what's necessary and needed is for you to use your brain, use your opportunities and your education to come up with solutions to those problems. She said, that's much harder to do. Mm-hmm. This is as much as my journey. Like I'm just as much of a mess as everybody else is. Right. And so it's about sojourning together and and looking to each other to to help to build the world that we want to see. <laughs> that was really great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I I feel I actually feel very convicted about yeah, our too. episodes <laughs> about deconstruction. No. <laughs> well, no, no, it's good. It's, it's very good. good. It's good. I think 
the house metaphor is really powerful. It is. Oh, thank you. That just came to me right off the dome fresh. That was good. That was. I was sitting here like, Candace, you probably should have wrote that down. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yes. Oh, you should definitely. It's a very powerful metaphor. Yeah, it was really good. And I think you really put your finger on something because it has been a disorienting time for a lot of people having these questions and dismantling, deconstructing decolonizing whatever all of these things that you want to call it and they're all and they're all intersected but they are disorienting and it it hurts and I think if you don't like having a guide to help you through or having a place to point people or help people is really a good word so thank you Mm -hmm. so I know what book two is about but I'm I'm sitting down and like formulating my own reading list for it and Mm -hmm. creating my approach Mm -hmm. to it to really start you know, committing to it the 1st of May. And one of the things that I was telling one of my friends, because they were asking me, like, why are you doing all of this on the back end? And I said, because people trust us, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially in the moment that we have been in. Mm -hmm. There are so many existential questions that a global pandemic created. Mm-hmm. And instead of many people saying, I don't have the answers because this caught me by surprise too, they came up with answers. <laughs> this happened because God needed to do this or God mm-hmm. needed our attention. A million people died. Like we lost in my own family and in my personal life, we lost like over 25 people. Oh my God. Like we didn't need to go to all of those funerals for God to get our attention, right? Mm-hmm. You know, what does it mean for us to get really silent and create space and room that says the questions are important? For some of them, we may not ever get answers, mm-hmm. but the journey to the answer and the and the the journey to the confidence of asking the question really is its own reward. And that's when we get to unearth new parts of us and new possibilities and new hopes because the evangelical church is literally like flailing Mm -hmm. (laughs) to retain some level of significance. I think what has happened is all of these, these pieces converged for people to rise to a certain level of like prominence, Mm. pulling out like all of the things that are wrong. Because it's like, if you can say the right buzzwords, people will retweet you, people will follow you, people Mm -hmm. will do those things. And we've got a lot of people who in the moment can say the right words, but what are they helping people to build? And what Mm -hmm. are they helping people to sustain? I don't need to hear all the time how Christianity is rooted in whiteness because when the world for me upends like that's not gonna help me (laughs) to Mm. navigate a shipwreck Mm -hmm. but helping me to lift that in those moments my ancestors are there God is there that there's a strength and a resilience that is generational (laughs) Hmm. that I get to tap into. And not Hmm. only is it generational, it's sacred, but giving me the room to like think through that and tap into that. Those are the kinds of things 
that really will help us to get through. And I hope that in time we'll see more people who who are helping to do that work mm-hmm. more than just the mm. this is what's wrong work. Mm-hmm. And for people who want in their spirits to begin the work of reconstruction, mm-hmm. but they realize I want a faith that can withstand these big questions that I'm asking, where do they start? And especially where do they start without kind of recentering the thing that they're reacting against? Mm-hmm. Yes. I was coming out of just the horrors of trying to make sense of my mother's passing, mm-hmm. of experiencing assault, of what was happening with me and my doctoral program. Friendships were changing. My heart was broken. Like, it was a lot. Mm -hmm. And I remember writing what I believed about God in that moment. Mm -hmm. And the list was not long. I remember I wrote, I believe that Jesus lived. I believe that Jesus died and rose. And that Jesus was coming back. And then I wrote that I believe in the darkest of night and in the darkest moment, God holds my hand. And I remember I had to build and construct an entire faith just on that. And it it was me literally piecing that I do not go through every day alone. Mm-hmm. And what is true is that we can think that we know that, but like the the very real crux of mm. the days where I was just mad at God and said as much, right? Mm-hmm. That there was a God that is big enough to hold that and meet me in in that pain and meet me in that frustration after something has happened, whether it's any kind of catastrophe and the dust settles, you're able to see the real cost of damage, like what you lost, right? Like you can't see that until the dust really settles and clears. Mm. You're able to see if there's anything there that you can salvage and you can pick up whatever pieces you can see and say, I'ma still build here. Or you may look at it and say, this is a total loss and Mm. I've got to walk away. Neither one of those answers is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. But you have got to have a certain level of confidence and courage within yourself to make that decision. And when I think anyone who, who is trying to reconstruct a faith that is outside of these harmful theologies and doctrines that we were raised in, the question becomes, what do I know to be true? Where am I in this journey? And Mm -hmm. I walk in the truth of, of what I know and then build on that. The unfortunate reality that I don't think too many people in the deconstruction movements and spaces talk about is it is very hard to turn off the old tapes and the old messages. Boy, is it ever. (laughs) And what happens 
is the moment that something goes awry, the moment there's disappointment, those old tapes mm -hmm. come back mm -hmm. and they start and you begin to think, well, if I want to done X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. it is a daily choosing of to refuse to lift those as true. That's how you begin to build a faith and a life that is constructed in the totality of God's grace and God's love. That the moment that something comes up, the moment you hear something that would seek to teach you otherwise about who you know God to be, the question is, wait a minute, all right, is this true? If it doesn't gel or rock with the guy that I know, I gotta let it go. I gotta let it go. Thank you so much, Candace. Yeah. <laughs> I know you. our our Thank conversation you. went off script and I'm so glad it did. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was it was great. Thank you so much for your work and just all that you're pouring into it right now. Thank you. Yeah. That was my favorite kind of conversation where you talk about everything from contouring to deconstruction. Definitely wasn't expecting us to talk so much about deconstruction with Candace, but I'm really intrigued by the house metaphor that she came up with and kind of proud that she came up with that on our show. It felt very true to me. And I feel like I've feel like I've been on both sides of that. Like, I feel like I've had others point out cracks in my foundation um, that left me kind of reeling or mm. houseless. Um, but I also feel like I have been the one pointing out the cracks mm -hmm. in conversations with other people without like really having a plan for how to deal with that or how to like walk someone through me being like, I don't know if you've got that right. So I also felt convicted talking to her. Yeah, I guess I, I was just reminded of some of the responsibility we have as mm -hmm. communicators and journalists and podcast right. hosts. Not that our job isn't to point out the cracks. I actually think that that right. is a really significant reason why people have resonated with our episodes on deconstruction. Also just recognizing that someone's house of faith is a very personal and special thing. And when yeah. that crumbles, that might be necessary, but it's really painful. And are we also Very. willing to help do the work of rebuilding or pointing toward another house of faith that can be life-giving where people can flourish? Because I have felt like I've been on both sides. Like I feel, I know we talk about Twitter on here a lot, but I feel like sometimes I, when I'm on Twitter, people are just like constantly lobbing like grenades at, at the foundation of my faith. Like mm. I'm like, Oh, I've never, I've never thought about that before. That's wow. You know, like, and they're just so casually thrown out there. Like someone mm -hmm. will be like, I, like, I think we have to just like write off the book of John because it's so anti-Semitic. And I'm like, huh, what, what do I do with that? <laughs> like, mm. and there's no, you know, it's like, that's, that can be like really shaking. And then I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to process that or what to do with that. And it kind of just gets thrown out there 
so casually, you know, mm-hmm. and that's incredibly disorienting and then puts a lot of the onus on me to go like figure out like, what does that mean? And what am I going to do with that? Having been on the end of that, I'm like, I don't want to put other people in that place either. Mm. And it is really easy to just say things out of context or to assume somebody's already on the same page as you are or to think that they should or have to be on the same page as you mm-hmm. are um, because, you know, like the work that we've done or the, the the conversations that we've had on the podcast, like all of those things have added a context to the faith journeys that we've been on. But that's like you can't assume other people have all have come to those same conclusions or gone through those same mm-hmm. processes. And I think it's really easy to assume that and then and then not take sort of a responsibility for actually shepherding people as you talk through these things. And obviously social media, you know, it it has for me played a really important role in helping me hear other people's perspectives and just learn. But also mm-hmm. it's really not in terms of really deeply examining one's faith and building a kind of faith that can withstand so many changes and challenges in the church mm-hmm. you feel like you're kind of doing it on your own because you're it's just you in the mm-hmm. screen and it's not always like if someone is you know lobbing this claim that maybe we should delete the book of john from the bible <laughs> because it's anti-semitic i'm like oh i've never thought about that before probably what's helpful is to read like to really spend some time reading and understanding and researching yeah. and understanding how someone came to that conclusion instead of Mm -hmm. just taking it on without a place to more deeply reflect on the challenge. Right. And I, I know that I have done this and so I'm not casting, I am pointing the finger back at myself, but sometimes it feels sometimes there's a self-satisfaction in pointing out the cracks. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if you all are Mm -hmm. ready for this, but Mm -hmm. actually we all need to wake up to this because I have seen it and I need other people, you know, and it's, I just want to be, I never want to say we can never critique the church or we can never ask serious questions about our beliefs, but doing it in a way that is humble and helpful rather than just peeved. And that's really hard work to do in real life let alone in like a couple hundred characters Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that candace has talked about and candace talks about in her book like she she's clear like this is not a deconstruction project but it is a challenge and there's a Mm -hmm. lot of challenge to white supremacy there's a lot of challenge to patriarchy Mm -hmm. you know her book or jesus and john wayne or beth allison barr's book like Mm -hmm. how that scripture passage in paul is read and the way that it's been taught to me my whole life you're saying is like a bad translation Mm -hmm. that's like so destabilizing and and it is scary and i and i think because these things have shaped our lives and and our ideas about who god is and our ideas about how we are Mm -hmm. to shake them up is scary yeah i mean if you've built your whole life and identity in this house and the house gets blown Mm -hmm. away where do you go everybody needs a home you know like a a home of meaning to live in (laughs) I really respect Candace for saying, for taking responsibility and saying, if I'm going to have a book that validly critiques aspects of the church and aspects of theology, then I'm going to offer, like, I'm going to see that as my responsibility to help shepherd and guide to a new belief system or a new way of thinking about this. 
Mm-hmm. I was struck by how pastoral that felt um, mm-hmm. as she talked about it to say like, this is, this is my work to do, um, to care for people and shepherd people. Do we need to become like podcast pastors? I think so. Oh, I feel very ill-equipped to do that. <laughs> because I, I, my, my bent is so much more like analytical. Uh huh. And then it's like, okay, so what's the answer? Where do we go from here? I'm like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I will say maybe we're not going to be podcast pastors, but I do also think there's a lot of value and maybe this is like a role that we play in friendships and in like fellow sojourners, like other people kind of traveling the similar path mm-hmm. that you can talk to along the way and mm-hmm. explore together. And, you know, maybe that's a role that we're playing is you know just walking alongside yeah even if elements or all of the house of faith have been torn down we're at least going to a new house together with other people you know yeah we're not like just throwing a grenade and then bailing we're all moving toward this new better household of faith where there's more room and now I'm thinking of the CCM song, Big House by Audio Adrenaline. Of course you are. Of course you are. A big, big house. Big, big house. <laughs> Where we will lots play of, football. Lots of rooms. No, thank you. I will be inside reading a book. I love a lawn football game. I'll admit. Really? Like you mm-hmm. play football? I mean, I will. If, toss if some balls other people back are forth. playing, I'll toss that pigskin with you. <laughs> This is such a hard image for me to wrap my mind around, but I I affirm and support that. Um, I just, yeah, I like games. But you, I think you're more in the outdoor sporty games. Oh, yeah. the Yeah, that's what I mean. This is so what, what, are, what are you talking about? I'm talking about board games. Oh, board games. Okay. <laughs> right. Or games I can yeah, play those on are my games computer. Too. <laughs> those are also games. <laughs> Stay by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Wyndham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. I've seen people say before, like, a dove is really just a pigeon. What?